What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Well, the dulcet tones of Lofty Fulton means that we're ready for another episode of The Canine Paradigm. Welcome back. Hi. It's a brand new year. Kicking off 2018. 2018. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everyone. Thanks for joining us last year and we look forward to... A big year. A big year this year. I think we've got a big year planned. Already we've got quite a few guests on the list ready to record. Lined up, ready to go. So I'm looking forward to it. And the feedback again has been great. People are saying that they're regularly tuning in, that they haven't listened to podcasts before and they're actually finding this really informative. Yeah, which is good. We do it because it's fun and if people listen, we'll keep doing it. Absolutely. So without further ado, cue the music. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello. And today we have our first Randy guest of 2018, Jasmine Whiting. Hi, guys. Super stoked to be here. Welcome, Randy guest. Our <laughs> Thank first. You. Our first. When we first started doing the podcast, I think we mentioned Jasmine in one of the early episodes and said that we wanted to get her on. And then the next time I saw her, she promptly told me that that was never going to happen. But here she is sitting in our studio. So, Jasmine, what happened? Well, I heard yours and Glenn's and Birdie's podcasts and especially after Birdie's, she spoke a lot about uh, personal development, growth and confidence building and they're all things I'm trying to work on and I'm not going to get anywhere if I keep saying no to opportunities. So I guess I grew a pair of balls and just said yes and here I am. That's fantastic really. It's the old saying carpe diem, seize the day. Bertie will be happy to hear that, I bet. Bertie will be happy to hear that. Um, Bertie got some great feedback from her podcast that she did and both Pat and I freaked out a little bit when we first had her on the show because we thought, wow, we've set the bar so high. We've had somebody who's totally came in and smashed it, mm. got some great feedback. It was like, who are these two guys talking to Bertie? These two chumps. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good and I'm glad that you found some inspiration through her podcast, which was kind of the inspiration that Pat and I had behind putting something like this together is that people can learn and it can give people education and certainly promote services that are being offered around the canine industry. Why don't we jump right in to your story, Jazzy, and tell us how you got involved in getting into the army. I was in high school and originally I wanted to be a canine handler for customs, but my career advisor didn't suggest that. He didn't think I'd be able to make it. So I started considering other options and it was suggested to me that I could join the army and I just went ahead and did that because I didn't really have any uh, other ideas of things that I could do. So I just went and enlisted. So straight out of school, basically you're into the army and what job did you do in the army? I was in logistics. So a lot of warehouse work and there was procurement and also a lot of truck driving and a few other jobs. That was in Holsworthy, right? Uh, correct. Yeah. Well, that's where the majority of it was. I was in Townsville at first. Right. Okay. When did you get out of the army? 2017. And did you do a deployment in that time? Yep, that was in 2013. Right, cool. So how many years in total served? Uh, six. Cool. Mm. So I enjoyed. So you the started fairly young. 
yeah, yeah, I was uh, 19 and I enjoyed the first few years and then went on my deployment and a few things were changing and started not enjoying the work. So I was looking to discharge, but I had to reach my four years before I could actually get out. Mm-hmm. And when you did discharge, ultimately, what was that for? Injury. So I had planned my discharge. I had a couple of weeks left uh, before I was going to become a shop fitter and I was going to do that as a trade. Uh, and while I was on leave... A shop fitter? <laughs> yes, a shop fitter. So what, you just one day woke up and go, you know what, I want to be a shop fitter. <laughs> um, my br- <laughs> <laughs> well, my brother-in-law's a shop fitter and I was always interested in trade work and I'd gone to him on a few jobs. He asked for my help and I'd do stuff and I was interested in it and I thought, well, that's at least a start until I decide really what I want to do. But while I was on leave waiting to discharge... I had a horse riding accident and I, in fact, broke my back. Mm. I'm noticing a theme here of army people with broken backs. Mm. Two yeah. in the room. You're the minority in this room, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't had a broken back before, but I've had some pretty severe sciatic pain before from just... Okay, you're in the group. Okay, cool. <laughs> I was worried. I was thinking, how am I going to tell a fantastic story so I can be included? How did you do that? You fell off the horse. What, what happened? Uh, horse riding accident. So f- it was a bit of a freak accident. Uh, we were galloping up a hill. I was the first out of a group and bird flew out from the grass. The horse got spooked and darted off in the opposite direction and I clearly went where the momentum was going and that was obviously to the ground and I hit it hard. And when I woke up because I was knocked unconscious immediately, I woke up a few minutes later and, yeah, couldn't move my leg. So that was a little bit odd. Just one leg? Yeah, the left leg. The right one was fine. Um, There was nerve pain and everything. Uh, I was in a lot of pain all around but the left leg I just couldn't feel or control at all. So what, you couldn't even move your toes or anything, couldn't feel anything? Nope. Wow. Shit. That must have been terrifying. Uh, yeah, a little bit, but I was so concussed it didn't bother me as much. So what happened then after that? <laughs> well, the saying goes to just get back on the horse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that literally. So they <laughs> <laughs> they put me... Back on the horse. Who's that? You just with some friends? Or? No, it was don't, an actual. Don't, don't actually name them. Yeah, don't no, it was an actual company, all right? Um, wow. So here you are, like lying on the ground, concussed, potentially spinal or nerve damage, and they thought in their ultimate wisdom, you know what we should do? Get this girl up, move her around, like give her a good shake, make sure she's okay, throw her on back on a horse, slap her on the bum and say, okay, just ride back down to reception and we'll fix you up and put a Band-Aid on you down there. Pretty much. So, okay, cool. Um, okay, I'm looking forward to a riding <laughs> adventure with this company. And the thing is I've done like first aid, I've, I've done a combat first aid course, which is more in depth than the, than the standard. And I know all about concussion and spinal injuries and all that sort of stuff. And yet I was that concussed that I just went along with it. No dramas. Yeah, I was like, cool. you're the victim in that z- yeah, sort of exactly. situation. So, so, I mean, and, the, you know, anybody who's offering a service out there should know. You guys all know I'm a motorcyclist. I tell everybody at every opportunity that I've got. But one of the first things. I used things, to be. I, I know. I've seen the picture. One of the first things that I tell people, oh, sorry, one of the first things I've learned in any first aid course I've ever did, and you guys have been involved in medical evacuations and everything with your army work, and obviously you've done first aid to whatever degree. One of the first things they always tell you with a person who's suspected of a spinal injury is don't move the person. <laughs> mm. You know, like call the paramedics in straight away or the ambulance in straight away and they need to do a full assessment on whether and how you can be moved. So did you sue these people? No. 
Oh, wow, I would have. <laughs> yeah, looked into it, but told by a couple of lawyers that it's a very difficult case to try and prove because for starters, I signed a waiver, but they still have a duty of care. And the thing is, when we're out there, no one can say definitely whether I broke the my back exactly like as it was when I got a scan at the very time I fell or if it progressively got worse after each movement that they, they helped me with. Mm. So I can't actually identify whether they made it worse or if it was exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think one of the hallmarks that really would have given it away was when you couldn't feel your leg and you couldn't actually move it or wiggle your toes or anything like that. I mean, mm. for me, if I've, I've come across a few people who've come off their bikes before, first question I always ask them is, can you move your limbs? Can you wiggle your fingers and toes? Have you lost any feeling or do you have any strange sensations? Before we even attempt to move them or sit them up or anything like that, that's always the – and I'm not a medic. I'm only a first aider, but it's one it's of the common basic, sense. It's common sense. It really is common mm. sense. What does that say about these people? So, Nothing much. So you're back on the horse and you gallop off the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, tr- you canter into emergency. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how long were you in hospital for? And what was your actual? What's your actual diagnosis? What What's wrong? So by the time I got to hospital, they didn't even bother with any safety precautions. They just laid me on a bed, got some scans and they said the next day that I have a fracture to my... Lumbar region? Yeah, lumbar region, L2, L3 transverse processes. Mm -hmm. So essentially I've snapped those two bones off completely Mm -hmm. and they're what's called a displaced fracture, which means they're not touching and they never will touch again, which means they'll never heal, which means you're going to be putting up with a back problem for the rest of your life. And unfortunately I got that at what? 21, 22 years old or something. So it might have been bad when you just fell off the horse, but then when you were galloping back down to reception on the horse, it it could have been just grinding gears all the way down there and just (laughs) exacerbated the problem. Yeah, and I mean that's what I can't prove though. Like you would assume, yes, it made it worse, but because I can't actually prove it, they can't prove a case. Mm. So no one's really willing to take it on with any certainty of Mm -hmm. getting a result. Well, fair enough. That's that's unfortunate, but I guess it's one of those things in the past that you have to move on from. Pretty much. So So you're back though, you it's an injury you're just gonna have to manage. You've rehabbed really well to a point where you're you're functioning pretty well. Like me, it's just something that you're gonna have to deal with for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, like I was pretty fit beforehand. Um I used to do CrossFit and I well, I used to coach CrossFit and was really fit and I think that's what helped me in rehab was the fact that I already had that level of fitness and it helped me recover quite quickly. Core strength and that. Um yeah, and when I say quite quickly I mean it took two years as opposed to five years or something like that. Yeah. So two years of going to a standard gym, doing standard weights and cardio um, rehabilitation. And then now I'm back into CrossFit, which is pretty good, trying to get on my fitness and now doing decoy work as well. So mm, Something we're going to talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Mm, good for facts. So <laughs> for people that don't know, I guess most, nearly everyone listening would, Army has a duty of care, right? So once you broke your back, you you can't discharge, can you? Until, until you're stable in your injury and uh, – you are able to sort of well, it's, it's stable is what the army's definition, right? You can't actually leave until then. So that you were two weeks out from discharge, breaking your back kept you in for a, how how much longer? Like almost another two years, right? Another two years straight, right? So that that must have been a kick in the in the nuts that you were two weeks away from discharging in a job that you weren't really enjoying, and then you're stuck there for another two. Uh, definitely, and it kind of sucked because it meant that I couldn't become a shop fitter because my back won't be able to handle yeah. that type of work, which was then. 
another kick into in the teeth because I was like, well, now what the hell am I going to do? I have no idea. I have no direction. Clearly I'm not going back to the army. Clearly I'm not going into shop fitting and I just kind of had no direction. Mm-hmm. That's your life in the army and how you got stuck there. It's sort of lombarded there for a while. Mm-hmm. Is lombarded a word? Did I just make that up? What did you say? Lombarded? Yeah. Just pretend that well, means the, that means stuck. There's, there's, a, there's a company in Melbourne called Lombardo or something, the party people or something, but Maybe. I don't know if it's a word. Well, anyway, stuck in the army. That'll bring us into the reason that we, we know each other is that you have an assistance dog, right? Yep. What's her name? Genta. And go ahead and tell us a story about how you ended up in the Young Diggers program and how Genta came to be. So while I was in hospital for that six weeks after I broke my back, um, bored shitless, I was on my phone as per usual, and I happened to come across an ad on Facebook or a post or whatever it was, and it was of the Young Diggers Dog Squad, and I'd never heard of it. I read it, and it was like, oh, PTSD, so uh, assistance dogs, blah, 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 and I was like, huh, that sounds interesting, cool. So I went into it, had a look, researched it, and I was like, wow, I had never heard of this. Decided to research it more and more. And I could see that this was something I could benefit from if I was able to get a dog. Mm-hmm. Have you owned a dog before? Like have you had a family dog or a, your own personal dog or was this your first dog? I grew up with a family dog. I was a Labrador, but I never had a dog of my own. I'd always planned to get one, but in the army it's pretty hard because you're always bouncing around from place to place and potential deployments and things like that. So I was always going to wait until I was in a stable location and I could actually take care of a dog. Right. So you find out about the Young Diggers program and sign up for that, right? And then you go looking for a dog. Yeah. So I signed up and started looking for a dog. And then in September 2015, I found Genta in a rescue group in Queensland and decided to adopt her. Now, I gave the Queensland rescue group a bit of a rundown as to what type of dog I was looking for to check that she was suitable. And they said, yep, yep, definitely suitable, you know, confident dog, this and that, awesome, very enthusiastic. And I was like, sweet, sounds like my dog. Had them uh, send the dog down, picked up the dog, took the dog home and about, what, 10 minutes into having the dog, I was like, this dog's a bit scared. I'm like, I don't know if it's just because it's in a new environment or if this is what the dog is. But I was like, no, no, it's just the environment. A few days later, a few weeks later, things weren't changing and clearly this dog had some issues and how, how old was she at that point, did you, did you say? Uh, she was six months old when I got her, or five and a half, sorry. But her backstory, which I later found out, she was seized by the RSPCA along with her litter mates at a week old. And <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> some of them um, had parvo and some were showing signs of it and they were then separated. But Gentard didn't show any signs of any of it. She had full good physical health. And she was separated from everyone else entirely. So she missed the whole critical period for a puppy to be socialized and experience everything. So then that's obviously affected her quite dramatically um, when she's older. So she was totally isolated for that six months or five and a half months prior to you getting her. She hadn't been out anywhere and hadn't done anything. And despite the fact that you were clear that you were getting this dog to train as an assistance dog for PTSD, you, you, they still sent it to you, sent it to you and said, yep, good to go. Yep. And I knew no better. Like I didn't know anything about dogs. I didn't know anything about rescue groups. I just was like, yep, this dog sounds cool. I'll get this dog. So, sorry, I just missed the point. Who organized to get the dog for you? Um, so young diggers can organize a dog or we can find our own. And well, 
young digs weren't very organized at the time. So they were sort of in their infancy at that point? Uh, yeah, you could say that. I think they were also going through some hierarchy changes, just some people coming in and out of uh the organization. Okay. So things were just a bit unorganized and it was taking a bit longer than what I wanted. So I started doing some research as well. Um, and then I decided to get my own dog and then have them help me train it, which is what they were going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. So the young diggers model really is the training is the therapy for the veteran, right? Correct. So, so it's the idea is to turn up with an untrained, but hopefully suitable dog. And the, the training process is what's meant to be therapy. And then you end up with an assistance dog that has helped you greatly in the in the, the path to becoming an assistance dog. Yeah, 100%. And so you've got Genta. It's a disaster. She's uh, actually, who named her? Did she come with that name or you named yeah, her? Yeah, she came with the name. Uh, apparently it means girly in the Netherlands. Right. Uh, so I was told. Girly? Mm, apparently. I'll have to ask my family. I'm from, I'm one half Netherlands. You crazy Dutch <laughs> bastard. <laughs> uh, so half, only half. Half. You're training with young diggers. How long were you training with them for? Um, well, technically I'm still with them because you you stay in the program for life. Like they're there to help you. Okay, cool. Um, but when I, when I started, uh, I wasn't quite getting the support that I needed for Genta because obviously she needed a lot of extra help. Mm-hmm. Um, She's a dog outside of the program really, like what, what should have been being worked on. Yeah, exactly. So... I was passed from I was I was allocated one trainer and then they said they didn't have enough time so they passed me to another trainer and then I still wasn't quite getting the help that I needed it was meant to be once a week but it wasn't more like once every month or two so I decided to take it upon myself to do some research uh, well I tried um, and just start trying stuff and started essentially counter conditioning and desensitizing Genta to a lot of her fears which at the time I didn't know that that's what I was doing. So if it's a program for life, are you still being contacted by young diggers? Are they still looking into your case? Are they still following up on your progress and what's going on with the dog, et cetera? Like who helps you and who follows things up? Basically once you're a qualified or once your dog is a qualified assistance dog, their main priority is to check that the training is still continuing and your dog's not falling behind and are they the doing standard. that? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. It hasn't been that long since I passed the public access test, uh, which we'll probably talk about later. But yeah, they're still in contact. Cool. So you're training with young diggers and that's like obedience training, right? But you are realizing yourself that there's a lot more training has to go into this dog. Desensitization counter condition, as you said, but you weren't, you didn't know that's what you're doing, right? You're just thinking, I need to give this dog some positive associations with the world. Yeah, pretty much. Like I had no idea about dog training at all. And so when you're in the army and you are leaving with an injury, like a, what they call like a medical discharge, you get a rehabilitation consultant um, that sort of helps you transition that out, right? Yeah, rehabilitation ca- uh, case manager, which case was manager. Nicole Belling. Nicole Belling. So we had the same one who, and she had taken care of me, what, uh, like a year or two earlier as I had left the army probably a year earlier. And so she contacted me and said, hey, we've got this girl. She's got this dog. She needs some help. You got out to be a dog trainer, right? And I'm like, yep, cool. Okay, so we're going to send it to you. So take it from there. Yeah, so I contacted you. We hooked up a day and we started training. So it's called Meaningful Engagement and the Army supplies a certain amount of funds and allows you to do something that's obviously meaningful and engages you with society. So I decided dog training, hooked up with Pat, did 10 weeks, so that's 10 individual sessions, 
and we started just working on different things. That spanned it over a few months. It's called meaningful engagement and you've got to do something meaningful and engaging. <laughs> kind of like that. There's a, 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 State a, the obvious. There's, there's a Blackadder skit where Rowan Atkinson goes into this cave and he's looking for a wise woman and this lady says to him, there are two things that you must know about the wise woman. She goes, number one, she's a woman. And he goes, don't tell me. She's wise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. It's kind of a dad joke, but classic British comedy. Yeah. Yeah, classic. Do you remember, so you came over to my place with this dog uh, and you remember the first thing I said to you? You looked at Genta and kind of assessed her in your own way and you're like, this dog is absolutely not suitable to be an assistance dog. If you want it to be an assistance dog, well, I'll let you finish that. Well, I said, we're going to have to smash a square peg through a round hole and- <laughs> You are going to have, because I can't babysit you all the time and be with you this dog, you are going to have to become a phenomenal dog trainer to get this dog to pass a public access test. Which, when did she pass a public access test? Uh, Mid last year. So that's exactly what you did. I've never seen dedication from anyone that wants to learn how to train dogs as much as I saw from you and heart and soul into it. And you amazingly got that dog over the line. So a dog that was completely isolated uh, until it was five and a half months old, removed from its litter mates and its mother because everyone else had parvo and placed with you who wasn't at the time a professional dog trainer or really had ever trained a dog before. And through dedication and hard work, you've now got this dog certified. You did your public access test. It was a love story waiting to happen, Jazz Pants. (laughs) Well, you don't get the dog you want. You get the dog you need. Exactly. That's the, that's, you hear that story more and more. So um, tell us a little bit about the public access test. You, I remember you, you had to do it in a rush because you're going to the hospital and wanted her to go with you. They wouldn't let you go unless she was certified. So you, I think you went to Canberra to do it, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I drove down to Canberra and saw them down there. They, they do do it in Sydney, but they couldn't do it within the time frame that I needed. So drove down, brand new area, never been there before. So obviously that was causing some issues for, for me personally, but the dog performed fantastically. Like I couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Obviously we passed and it was, it was a happy ending and I was really impressed with how well she actually did. I was obviously doubting myself quite a lot despite the fact my friends and, and peers were telling me that it would be fine. I was still very unsure, but I needed to try anyway because I was getting admitted to hospital. So went down and it involves general obedience and they have to prove that they're not sensitive to noises or um, different surfaces and things like that. They have to be an all-around stable dog to get through this test. They have to do all the basic obedience, walk with you, not interact with people and basically do anything that you ask them to do without hesitation and without being distracted by anything surrounding them, whether it's a trolley or a kid running at them, they still need to be able to perform their, their tasks. Just a rock-solid, stable dog. Pretty much. Which she was the opposite of completely when you go. There. <laughs> 100%. It's amazing. At some stage, we're going to talk about critical periods of development in a podcast that we're going to do, and it's amazing that Genta came from such a scrambled beginning. You know, obviously, we're going to fill in the blanks of what she was and who she is now. Mm-hmm. I'm involved in breeding dogs. I'm obviously involved in in being in kennels and we're all trainers in the room. 
And one of the things that we know as being a paramount thing in any situation in getting the perfect dog or the perfect puppy is having a solid foundation period with or critical period with the dog, making sure that that puppy has every opportunity, every chance, that not only is it genetically sound, it's also environmentally sound as well. And that's kind of crazy that you got a dog that was everything but that. I mean, Pat mentioned that before and you've talked about it as well. It's just madness that your first foundation dog was a dog that was taken from a litter a week old. All the pups died from Parvo. The universe was against this dog and yet we know her and she's a beautiful dog, wonderful dog. 100% suitable for the purpose now. Yep. Like you said, you didn't get the dog you wanted but you got the dog you needed. Yeah, well, without it, I wouldn't have been so interested in dog training. I wouldn't have needed to find Pat and he wouldn't have introduced me to the Napopo system and that's kind of what started everything else. So we'll talk about that in a second. I just want you to tell the story because I remember you texting me after you passed the public access test <laughs> uh, that you knew you'd passed when something happened. Go on, tell us that. Yeah, so uh, part of the test is a recall. So basically the two assessors or the assessor and the helper uh, stood at one end of an aisle in Coles or Woolies or what have you and I told the dog to downstay and they just held the lead loosely just so then in case there's any accidents the dog can't go anywhere and I had to walk away from the dog and then return to the dog and then they instructed me to walk away from the dog again and this time I needed to recall the dog when they were uh, instructing me on what to do I was like okay cool recall the dog Uh, how would you like me to do that and they they sort of just looked at me blankly and I said well you know I I just want to make sure I do it right and like we'll just simply recall the dog I was like, well, do you want me to recall it to front or do you want me to recall it into the heel position or do you want it to loop around the back of me? I wasn't sure. And they just looked at me like I was crazy. So I just walked off down the other end and when they gave me the nod, I just recalled her and I called her directly to front, which means she's sitting right in front of me, head up, wagging tail, and she's just... Pressed completely against (laughs) you, exactly like we get your full points in an IPO trial. Yeah, and... Their face was, well, I wasn't quite sure well, what their face was and I thought I might have screwed it up. Slapped ass was, look. Well, <laughs> I thought I might have screwed it up because she was facing me and maybe she was meant to be facing the other direction. So I quickly told her to flip into the heel position and then their face changed again and it was just complete shock and potential amazement right there. And at that point, when I walked off in a complete focused heel towards them, I was like... A prancing focused heel. (laughs) Yeah. There was no way I was failing that exam. Like, I just nailed it. That was it. I knew at that point and I was confident and I I had no problems. Awesome. So that's the day she passed and she's your certified assistance dog since then and everything's going great with her. So let's go back a couple of steps and talk about your journey into becoming a trainer. So you have identified that this dog is not going to be easy to get over the line that you're going to have to put in a heap of work. We started working together once a week only just and giving you things to work on through the week. And every week when you came back, I saw that it had been done, which is rare, you know, with clients, as you both know now that it's super rare that you get someone that's like, or, or harassing you during the week. I've done that thing. What's the next thing? Right. So then you came to, uh, the first, uh, Nipopo school that we had here and did the silver and later on did the gold and um, tell us about your experience there. When we did the silver, I was in a pretty bad headspace. I was actually in hospital at the time, but they allowed me to leave for the 
purpose of the course because I said it was going to better me um, in terms of my future and what have you. So I attended the course. It was quite difficult because I'm not very good with uh, theory work. But that's where I met Glenn and a bunch of other trainers as well who were quite amazing. I didn't talk a lot to them because I was still in a bit of a shy mode where I didn't initiate conversation. But, but it was someone... the greatest day of your life. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so randy. Um, anyway, so... I've been waiting for someone to do that even though that's my line. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of people came and introduced themselves to me over the week and it was really good. I started talking a little bit more like my head was just going to explode. There was so much information to take in and Bart was offering so much knowledge. It was really quite incredible. And especially Bart with his crazy tests. <laughs> I mean, oh man. <laughs> the hard, hard test. Oh, the hard, hard test. God. But everyone got through, everyone learned. Everyone did. Including Jazz. <laughs> and we became a little family over it. Exactly. So mm. the, as a school tends to do, it develops a very tight-knit community. I think it's that joint struggle while you're there. Mm. Um, and then we started training together outside of the hours that the army was paying for, right? So we have our own training group that has evolved into our PSA club and you started coming out to that? Yeah, I did. And once again, I was still pretty shy. I wasn't really initiating conversation. I was just hiding in the little back corner, but I attended and did some obedience with you guys with Genta, which was fantastic because I needed her to work around other dogs. That was one of her weaknesses. She was always over aroused when she was around other dogs. So we needed to work on her impulse control and to actually be obedient with other dogs surrounding her. Mm -hmm. So in our sort of obedience class and doing bite work and that, having her just in the room was a, a training opportunity for you, right? Yeah, exactly. But what happened recently, well, not recently, in the last year or so, we, we phased out doing so much obedience in our club training and we brought in more and more bite work as we transitioned into becoming a PSA club and your assistance dog don't bite. <laughs> she plays tug that's about it so to stay really uh, as a key member of the group tell everyone tell the crazy people listening or tell the people listening what you crazily did i decided to ask pat and glenn if they could teach me to decoy and i'm thankful that they said yes and now i do that so we we have like a club rule that um lots of people think that they'd like to learn to decoy and everybody's welcome to give it a shot but Glenn has a particularly hard biting, big, heavy German shepherd named Max. And to start learning to decoy, he's a safe dog, right? So he knows what he's, he's doing. He's a safe dog. He's a very, he's actually a very social dog. And what I should also mention is that Jazz handles him as well. Yeah, like that's she right. She actually handles him and goes out and does clicker training with him and runs him on the, on the slap mill and everything. So he's such a friendly dog. But I started that after I took the bite. I'd that, never met the dog before. Oh, had you? Is that a no. fact? Yeah. Is that a fact? There you go. So I took the bite and then... Well, actually, you asked me to do the clicker stuff and start training him and hang out with him and what have you. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. But I was like, can I get bit by him first? Like if, because I don't want to handle him and then him to bite me. And I was but just I like. But I think I explained to you at that stage that I take bites from him as well and he's my dog. Oh yeah, definitely. And he will bite me with every bit of vigor that he will bite another decoy. Like to him, it's part of the show and he will hammer me just as part. And yet I can then out him grab the lead and then go and work on another decoy. He's a very clear dog and which is what we're aiming to produce. Mm -hmm. It's part of the character assessment or I guess the, the training program that we're constantly evolving is that we can have these hard dogs and yet still be able to produce a dog 
that can be handled by multiple handlers and still safe in a public situation. So you've given all the caveats. Yeah. Now you can explain that he bites yeah, like a motherfucker. Yeah, now, now that I, yeah. he's, got a, he's got a head like a crocodile and jaws like a vice. Yep. And, and he, yeah, he it hurts hard. to get bitten by him. Yep. So the club rule is for people who want to decoy or learn to decoy is you've got to get bitten by Max uh, in two different sessions within a seven-day period. Absolutely. Right? So you've got to be able to back up. It's not that we're trying to get anyone injured, but it's got to show that, yep, I'm willing, I'm going to endure the the pain to get through this and I'm not about talking about doing it. I'm here to present and actually do it. Because our club logo, as everyone knows, we've said it multiple times, but it's cool story, bro, show me a dog. Yeah. And we don't want no sissies. We don't want no sissies, that's right. <laughs> they just added that bit, Jazz. I like it, we're keeping it. Um, but so Jazz did it, turned up. Got nailed by him. A few days later, came back in, got nailed by him again. It was the same day. No, well, you, you had to do – you did the second session that night, but you had to come back the following oh, – um, yeah. it was like the next Tuesday or whatever. And so – And Randy um, as well, I think. Yeah, yes. it was all So we did um, Max on a on – a, um, on, on an a, arm. In an arm and uh, Randy on the – On the on legs. The, on the leg. Yeah. That's it. That was how your career started as a, as a decoy and we've been training ever since – Crazily. So why do you like that so much? What is it about that that you're so into? This is still a hard question to answer. Is it the pain? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So random. Is it getting sweaty with a bunch of guys? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it about decoying that you enjoy so much? Uh, Well, I remember when I first started watching you do it and Glenn do it as well on the, the weekly training that I was attending I was very intrigued and I didn't really understand everything at the time because obviously I'm still learning and I've, I've never done uh, any bite work of any sort before. But I could see that there was an incredible amount of skill that's required to be able to do that because you're not only coordinating yourself, you're also getting the timing and judging the behavior of the dog so you can actually work the dog while it's biting you. Yeah, I think what a lot of people watching – sort of bite work don't understand is that there's a lot more to it than just getting bitten and flailing around the place. And I think I see a lot of people doing that and not understanding that every action you have is is a, a reaction for the dog and he's making decisions based on what you do and to build a strong biter and, you know, work on the the things that you actually want to improve in the dog and get rid of the, the aspects that you don't like in his bite or, or anything, you're a very important part of it. You're not just a, a tug flapping around. Mm. It's it's an interactive dance between you and the dog. And you're it's, actually training it. Yeah, it is. It's much like any – well, take combat for argument's sake, boxing, martial arts or anything like that. When you first start boxing, you just do a lot of bag punching. You're running around and the very first time you ever get into a ring and you're effectively having a fight with somebody, a boxing match, you're flailing around a lot. Like Mm -hmm. all your technique, all the skill, all the bag punching, everything that you're taught is out the window. And a lot of young decoys look the same sort of way. They don't know how to move. They don't know how to react. They don't know how to respond. But over time, as you pointed out, there is skill and technique that's involved in shaping that blade. Okay, so you're effectively learning how to get better and how to become better by realizing the dog's going to come at me at this angle. I need to move this way. I need to counter this. I need to prevent myself from being injured. I need to prevent the dog from being injured. I need to ensure that this is going to be a great outcome for both of us. The one thing that a lot of decoys have to come to terms with and realize is as much as they love the the worship and the heroism that comes with being a great decoy, you're also a paid loser. 
your job is to make the dog look better. And mm-hmm. part of being a great decoy is constantly remembering that and falling into line with my role is to make the dog look good. And I mean, once you start realizing it, but not only look good, but feel good as well. Feel good about the job that it's doing. If you're a decoy and you make that dog come away and this is a whole this whole event is aversive for the dog, you failed. You've made it a, a terrible outcome for the dog. And unfortunately, in some testing platforms, that has to be a requirement. When it's real life, you have to find out, is this dog going to run on me or is it going to stick with the role? Yeah. So uh, in, in those applications, it has to be, it must be. Yeah. We're sidetracking a little bit, but for sure, I think the, one of the big issues that I see is training videos are boring, right? So no one posts videos of a young dog being developed, although they show very young dogs. They only show the highlights. They show, and they show the finished product. So mm. they show a dog who's hard as nails, but he got there through forging that blade. Yeah. And you show this video of outrageous big catches and the dog taking a, a huge amount of pressure. And then people who don't have anyone to show them the steps along the way go, okay, that's what it is. They put their suit on, they buy their suit, whatever. You get a dog sent in, they just break the dog immediately. I guess one of the points I was trying to make before is nobody is amazing at the start. No. Like you, you never get into decoy work or any skills work or even obedience for that matter looking terrific. And you're 100% right. I've never seen videos of people doing development work and thought, oh, my God, that was amazing. Yeah, you it's know, boring. It's, it is boring. But when you're watching the finished product, mm, you know, amazing. it's amazing. I mean, already, Jazz, you've shown great tenacity and skill and technique in what you're doing, but you're asking the right questions. And when you're making mistakes, you're not afraid of making mistakes and you're you're working your way through it and realizing, okay, I need to be better. I need to do better. Perfect. Well, if you don't make mistakes, like you can't can you learn. learn. Yeah, Correct. Exactly. Hmm. I've said right from the start, and it's the same as what we spoke about, Scotty, and it's the reason you, Jazz, are going to be really good decoy and faster pass any of us, I think, is you're athletic and you're not scared of dogs and you can learn. That's really all it takes, right? If you're athletic and can move in the suit, which you now have one that fits you. <laughs> Thanks to you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and you're not scared of dogs. You're not worried. You're not flinching as they come in. You can read them all the way in and you listen and take feedback from people. You, that's all it takes. It's easier after that. We have to tell the suit story now because it's actually part of the whole yeah. story thing that happened. So. What happened um, prior to Christmas was Jazz was wearing one of Pat's old suits, which looked like baggy clothes on her. It's way too big. I'm <laughs> so like a good, a full. I'm six one. How tall are you? Yeah, her. Uh, her I'm like a. I'm a good foot taller than you. Her fingers would just poke out the end. It looked like it was bunched up on her feet because it was. It was like really compounded on her. And what Pat said to me one day was, I really want to surprise Jazz because she's putting in the effort, she's turning up all the time, she's become an integral part of the crew. I really want to surprise her with getting her, her own suit. And he goes, but how do I do it? How do I organize custom it? Made how suit. do I get a custom-made suit that fits her like a glove without actually alerting her or making her aware of that's what I'm trying to do? So I said, we came up with this plan that um, what we were going to do was have the current suit that we, she, she was wearing to get it altered and Made up about there's a guy in Queensland. That yeah, can there's alter a guy suits. in Queensland alter suits, and Jazz is thinking to herself, "Oh, you know." Uh, so Pat's told her this, and and your immediate thoughts were, "I was like, well, hang on, if if you're gonna get a suit altered, then why wouldn't you just get a whole new suit? Because surely it's gonna cost the same, considering it's a custom suit when you buy it new." And you're about to customize a suit anyway, which is exactly like, how the it, plan was supposed to. It go. didn't make sense in my head, but I I got the measurements and I gave it to Pat. And after that, I just I actually completely forgot about it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll sort it out next year. 
And six weeks later, the hot pink white soup turned up. And nice. it is amazing. Like, it is freaking awesome. I've already taken a bite in it. That's right. You went straight over because we're sort of on holidays at the moment from training. Went straight over to Sam and got nailed by the meerkat. Yeah, pretty much. And it was amazing. Like, it was awesome. Oh, I love the collar she's wearing in the Oh, photo. yeah. It uh, says, I will fuck you up or something. Yeah. Something like that. No, uh, I will fucking hurt you. Yep. That's true. It, she does. That had to come from Jason Furman. Yeah. Who has sent me one for Opie called Opalicious and <laughs> one for Randy called um, So Randy or something like so that. So Randy. Yeah. And the I ones think, on my kennels, I've got the Malatar that he sent me in. Oh, yeah. And the Battle Springer. <laughs> so I think the one on Meerkat is uh, Reckless's old one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's hers. You're learning to decoy. You're doing a great job of it. You're part of the club. Now I want to move on to your new business that you're, you're starting up, right? Tell us what your business name is. Uh, Prime Canine. And what's the go? What, what are you doing? Basically training pet dogs. And if anyone has any questions about assistance dogs and things like that, I can always help with that. But I'm not specifically going down that path mm-hmm. or yet anyway. But you've been um, through it. You understand it. Yeah, exactly. So I've already had a couple of people ask me um, to do that with their dog. And, you know, I'm more than happy to, to help them out with that. Obviously, as you said, got the experience in that. But uh, the business is predominantly uh, just pet. Uh, dogs. Mm-hmm. You've only owned the one dog yourself. How did you come to develop a, a heap of skill in training lots of dogs? How did you get your hands-on experience? Um, well, luckily enough, I, I know a guy <laughs> that uh, works here at Pet Resorts Australia Dural, and that's Glenn Cook. And I spoke to him about it, and we arranged for me to do some volunteer work here. And I began in the kennels, just doing the dirty jobs, and then they asked me to join the training part of it. Um, the training section. I, I just started training dogs here and I've been doing that for all of last year. Cool. So it, it's a great point to bring up. There's a lot of people I hear talk about, oh, like, you know, it's, it's how do you get experience? Well, you just went out and, and got it. You put in the hard yards, gave up your time to get the hands on, but now that's going to pay dividend because in the last year you've had your hands on dozens and dozens and dozens of dogs and various training problems, training outcomes. You've got to work on a million different things here and got your hands on and developed a real, uh, actually very impressive skill base, right? Sure, if you call it impressive, I'll take that compliment. Well, when we were in Melbourne in October, when Bart was back here, people who have already done the Silver and Gold School come back to the, the next ones, and Bart said that if he had a pet dog training side of his business, that he would be importing you to Belgium to run that or, or to train dogs for him in that. And it wasn't beyond the realm of possibility of starting one to, so that he could get you in, right? Don't be modest, that's what he said. Yeah, well, that's that's what he said, and I'm not going to lie. At first, I sort of laughed. I thought it was a joke, and when he repeated it the next day, I realized he was serious. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I only bring that up to give some context to you are very good. You're very, very good at it. You're very dedicated and um, precise in your actions, and you've got a, an excellent education now. And a work ethic. And work ethic in doing yeah. it. One of the things that I noticed straight away, Jazz, is that you turn up on time. You say what you mean and you mean what you say. And for a younger person than us, I always find that impressive because that's a skill that's fast disappearing from a lot of generations now. Like a lot of people, they want the accolades. They don't want to do the work to get it. It's like looking at an extremely fit person or a person who plays uh, a musical instrument or even a person with a great dog. Mm -hmm. How did they get there? Lots of hard work. How did they, during that hard work time, they had to get uncomfortable and that's a few things that you've done. You, you've turned up, you've done the dirty work, you've been out there, you've trodden up and down the field with different types of dogs. And when I watch people do that, I'm always impressed. 
that's what I had to do. Pat's certainly done a lot of that. There's, uh, I mean, we don't get paid for PSA. We don't get any. There's, there's no. We actually have to pay money for the, into the club to come and take bites and work the dog. So we're when we're doing all this skill work, there's no financial gain, but it's all part of learning and it's all part of developing a club together and having that pride in yourself that you're developing an ongoing uptake of skills. So for me, I think it's a big congratulations. Thank you. You've gone out on your own now. Tell us the name of your business again. Prime Canine. And how can people get in contact with you? I'm on social media, uh, Facebook. I've also got business cards which will post a photo of those with yeah. details on the back. So on our on our Facebook page, we'll have, if you're listening and you want to check out the photos that go along with this episode, we'll have photos of Jasmine's business cards so you can check out what she's up to, look at her business, go and follow her on Prime Canine uh, on Facebook and send her, what area you're working in? Uh, MacArthur area is where I'm based, but like I'm mobile, so... All over Sydney, really. Yep. Specialising out there in MacArthur, but can travel around. Yep. Cool. Oh, and speaking about that, with the Prime Canine page, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's supported that already, who's liked the page, and those people who have also left reviews. Uh, When I saw the notifications on my phone, I opened it up and I was uh, really quite surprised that, you know, people had left reviews who who know my work and know me um, and know my capabilities. So that was a genuine surprise. So thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. It's cool. Like, especially when you're starting out and you've only got a few clients on the go already and you need to build a reputation, having other dog trainers right on there that they trust you with their dogs is great, I think. Yeah. And it's also an incredible compliment to me. Yeah, totally. Well, you probably find there too, Jazz, is that a lot of people there wouldn't have backed you if they don't believe in you. I'm only speaking personally, but I don't just write reviews for people just for the hell of it, just because you and I are friends. I gave you that review from the heart because you earned it. Yeah, and believe it or not, I actually, like I've I've read the people who have left the review and I know that each of those people mean it, which means even more. It's not just, oh, yeah, I'll I'll add a review. No, it's it's not contrived. Yeah, exactly. It's awesome. We wanted to get... Jazz on to talk about assistance dogs when we first talked about it, and we have. And then Jason had the idea of getting some newcomer to the industry and getting their perspective on coming into the industry, which we have. We've hit two birds in one stone. But what I want to do is get you back every you know, three or four months or whatever, however we come up with it, and check in with you and see what's going on, what have you learned, what is happening for your dog training career, and let our listeners follow along to the, your, your progress. Do you consent? <laughs> you you've put me on the spot here, but based on what I told you earlier in the episode, I'm not saying no to opportunities. I've trapped you. <laughs> you have. You, you need to watch the well, the movie Yes Man by Jim Carrey. <laughs> well played, Pat. But yeah, the answer is yes. Awesome. Um, I think that'll be something fun to follow along. Definitely. Uh, that's pretty much it from us for this episode. It's been excellent having you on, Jazz. Thanks so much for coming on. I know that. It's not easy for you to talk about yourself. I know you suffer from some anxiety problems and just doing this is a huge, a huge step for you. So thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I know that um, people listening and hearing your story and hearing the difficulties you've gone through will appreciate the, uh, you taking this step. So again, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a big thanks because hearing Birdie's Bravery Workshop, which you were talking about before, you've done something very brave today. Yeah, it's, um, it's good and it's good to be able to see progress and actually make the changes, not just know what you need to change, actually do it. So, and one of my favorite quotes, which I relate to a lot is by Dorothy Thompson. And it's only when we are no longer afraid 
do we begin to live? So I'm really trying to push through those barriers that stop me from actually progressing and doing this and doing the future podcast is one way to do that. So cool. Any last words? No, just you're Randy. (laughs) (laughs) God, you're Randy. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please jump on to uh, iTunes or whatever it is you're listening through and give us a review. Doing that helps other people find the podcast that we can't just harass on Facebook to do it. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do so on Facebook, the Canine Paradigm. If you want to have a whinge about me to Glenn, do that on Facebook. If you want to have a whinge about Glenn to me, do that. Um, again, again. God, my inbox would be full. <laughs> Don't but, forget we've got Instagram too. Oh, yeah, we're on Instagram as well. Yeah. All right. Cue the music. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got to drop the bass because it goes deeper. <laughs> <laughs>